Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast. We want to know your entrepreneur's story and how we can offer the help that means business. Enter Entrepreneur SA with FNB on 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. It is 27 minutes to 10 o'clock and uh, this is when we give you an opportunity to ask the naked scientist whatever it is that you want to ask him. We are opening our lines for you as of now. We're taking all your science-related questions. Uh, we're stripping science down to its base essentials. And if you're curious about the human body, do call us and uh, we'll answer all your questions about the wonderful laws of nature and the intricacies of the human body on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. The Naked Scientist is joining me from Brighton this morning. Good morning there, Chris. Hello, Reedy. Hi there. I understand that you've been very, very busy. You are attending uh, some workshop with a very, very long name, British Society for (laughs) Gene Therapy and European Society for G. Oh, it just goes on and on. What's going on there? Well, I'm, I'm at, as you say, the British Society for Gene Therapy's annual conference. Uh, we've actually been asked to come and put together a whole load of multimedia around the conference and the science that's being presented here. Put simply, this conference brings together scientists from across the world who work on gene therapy and stem cell therapy. So cutting-edge research that's aiming to try to cure a number of different diseases. And over the next few days, we'll hear about diseases that you inherit, like haemophilia, the blood clotting problem, cystic fibrosis, the lung problem, certain bone marrow problems and immune deficiencies, and visual problems. Hmm. We'll hear how scientists are using uh, various techniques, including modified viruses, to introduce new copies of genes into patients' tissues so that they can repair a genetic defect so people don't get a disease they would otherwise get, or put in cells so that they can remedy a condition that a person has already got. This science is, it's not a new field because it's been going for many years, but it's really beginning to blossom in terms of what scientists can do. And so we're here this week to find out some of those discoveries and then turn them into interesting radio programs and daily updates from the conference so that people can find out more. We're actually producing about 15 minutes of news from the conference every single day. In fact, on the front page of the thenakedscientist.com, our website this morning, very, very soon mm-hmm. you'll see a podcast episode from yesterday appear. And this was fun because um, we actually had a, a public engagement day. They actually, very unusually for a science conference, launched the conference with a day just for the general public. And they invited lots of school kids in from... Uh, actually, the whole of the, the southeastern corner of England, and we did a whole load of lectures for them so they could understand more about the science involved. But then we also did a DNA fingerprinting race. Mm. So to try and, and to try to explain to the children a bit more about how DNA and genetic fingerprinting works, the kind of thing that you see used on crime programs, on the television, also in paternity testing and that kind of thing. 
we set up this race. We got five schools to compete with each other. We gave them DNA samples from five possible um, individuals who could have donated some stem cells, let's say, and we gave them a sample of DNA from the stem cells and said, get the genetic fingerprints out of the uh, all of the individual cells and the, the sample from the stem cells and then work out which person from these five they came from. And it's a race. And the person who came first um, won an iPad and the company BioRad sponsored it. Mm. And we had a, a winner within three hours. They produced a genetic fingerprint and solved the, the mystery. Wow. So they, they really enjoyed that because it was a way of doing some practical hands-on and seeing the technology and the science come together in a practical way that they could understand. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll give us some feedback then next, uh, next week, uh, Chris, as to what came up and all of that. Let's go to... I'll certainly do my best. Okay. Let's go, oh, two Johns have lined up. Let's start with John in Kenilworth and John in Lotus River. Stay on the line. I'm coming to you next. Hi there, John. Hi there, Rudy. Mm. Or I uh, wouldn't call you Rudy. Mm-hmm. And hi, Dr. Chris. My question is, I've got electric clocks in my house and they lose two minutes a day. Uh, my cell phone says it's, three, it's uh, 9.37 now. And my electric clock says it is... 9.32, and I set it on Wednesday. So they lose about two minutes a day. Um, but I thought that power had to come through at 50 megahertz. How is it possible that it, it, this time difference can happen with electronic devices which aren't connected to the power mains? Hi, John. Um, well, the, the difference is that <clears throat> if you've got things like cell phones and computer clocks, they are plugged into a time server. So they can continuously update themselves and they can put themselves right. They're continuously making sure that they're displaying the correct time, or at least the modern ones do. Whereas electronic clocks that you just set manually and then they just use power coming out of the wall to run themselves, I don't think they actually have, unless they're a slightly posher model, I don't think they have any kind of correction system. Um, You can get radio control clocks that listen out for a signal which is broadcast, which tells the time by radio and certain clocks are programmed to listen for that signal and then update themselves at a certain time of day. I suspect that your clocks are just losing time because they aren't uh, incorporating any kind of update circuit and so they just slowly slip and you have to keep putting them right. Okay, thank you very much, John. Does that... Pardon? I'm thinking there's a plot by ESCOM to deliver less power and charge more. <laughs> ESCOM is our national electricity supplier, uh, uh, Chris, and uh, there's been a breakdown of trust between ESCOM and us as citizens of South Africa, <laughs> given I, the I cost heard, yeah. of electricity <laughs> and the power outages. Anyway, let's go to John in Lotus River. Hi. Hi, Reedy and I, Doc. Mm. I just wanted to check with you, what's the smallest substance known to man and what does it consist of? The smallest substance known to man. Hmm. (laughs) Well, if you'd asked someone that question a couple of thousand years ago, the guy Democritus, who was a Greek thinker, uh, came up with the concept of the atom. The idea atom means to cut. And his idea was that if you kept cutting things, eventually you'd get down to something which was uncuttable. And that was his atom. The idea being that was the smallest unit of which everything was made. And that idea held for a very long time that... There were these finite, tiny units, atoms, which assembled together to make the macro molecules and substances we see around us. But then when physicists got more ingenious and were able to do cleverer experiments, they began to realize that actually you could get smaller than atoms because when they began to smash atoms to pieces with very high-energy colliders, 
it became clear that there are not just atoms, but subatomic particles. And so atoms, which you can think of as tiny footballs, are themselves composed of tinier particles, which pop in and out of existence and coalesce together to make an atom exist. And these are things like the quarks that we talk about. So the smallest substance known to man are these subatomic particles. And I think if you ask a physicist now, they'll say that at the energies we're using, we don't think that there are any particles smaller than the particles that we currently know exist that put, that put themselves together to make atoms. So those would have to be those smallest particles that you're referring to. Oh, that's a very interesting question. Thank you very much, John in Lotus River. And uh, is it Greer in Moraleta Park? Have I said your name hey. correctly? Okay, welcome. Hey. Hi, really. Um, we adopted a little boy. He's eight months old at present. Um, at birth, he wasn't born in a hospital. So the phlegm wasn't removed from his chest. So at this point, we're having a lot of trouble. We get physio out every day to remove the phlegm from his chest. So I don't want him to be on antibiotics, you know, to break down his system and that type of thing. Is there anything else we can do to to sort of cure this or heal it or mm-hmm. prevent um, it? So why did why does he have this phlegm in his chest? Can you just explain that bit to me again? He's, we adopted him and his birth mother gave birth to him in her home. So, yeah. um, you know, his phlegm wasn't removed or the slime wasn't removed from his chest at birth. Okay. Do you think he was born with a difficult labour and may, may have aspirated some of yes. the, what's called meconium? Yes. Okay. Well, sometimes when that happens, it does take them a little while to recover because it does clog up their chest a bit. Okay. Um, I obviously can't see him, so I can't have a look at him, and so I, I can't really comment on his personal case. But have you also had it checked to make sure there's not some other structural problem or some other underlying genetic thing, like cystic fibrosis, for example, just to make no, sure he hasn't you know, got some kind of underlying my disorder? GP, and, you know, he did initially when we got him, which was two months ago, and the GP said there's just a lot of phlegm on his chest, and it's definitely from birth. Yes. Well, I mean, the other possibility is that there was an infection there and that this has caused a little bit of injury to the lungs that's going to take a little while to get better. But as I say, without seeing him, it's really hard to know exactly why he might have that problem. And, and it would probably be quite unfair of me to speculate. Um, if it is something simple like aspiration, breathing in of meconium, the thick stuff, um, when the baby is being born, this can take a little while to clear. And you can get then infections on top of infections, which can make it more difficult for it to clear up. If there's something more diffi- more serious going on, then that obviously needs investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would I would uh, doggedly pursue it, but I don't think I can do any more than just give those general answers. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's good luck, Ria. I hope it all comes right and there's more clarity of, on what is going on. Let's go to Maria in Bryanston. Hi. Uh, hi, uh, morning. Mm. I just want to find out from the naked scientist. I've got a seven-year-old boy who's got sickle cell anemia. And uh, he's been prescribed um, a folic acid and penicillin that he's been taking from about an age of two. But now they've since added hydroxyurea, which they say, I think, all the meds he needs to take for the rest of his life. I wanted to find out if there's any side effects to that. And secondly, he tends to have a lot of nosebleeds, particularly when it's hot like this. Is there anything that we could do to... 
try and regulate this or how, what is the quickest way to stop uh, the nose bleeds? Because we're obviously worried with the already pre-existing uh, anemic uh, condition, how we can just ensure that the bleeds are minimized. Thank you. Okay. Hi, Maria. Hi. Um, so am I right in, when, from what you've said, he's actually got sickle cell disease, so he hasn't got sickle cell trait. No, he's, he's, he's got, got sickle cell disease. 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 Okay. okay. So you, you, you must be a carrier then. I didn't know I was a carrier until he okay. started uh, manifesting the symptoms <laughs> of sickle cell. I see. Mm. Okay. Well, for people who are not across this, I mean, sickle cell anemia is um, very common in African countries. This is an inherited disorder where you have to have two copies, one from the mum and one from the dad, of the gene which encodes one of your haemoglobin genes, which is the stuff in red blood cells that carry oxygen around the body. And when you have both of the copies of the gene abnormal, what it does is give you something called sickle cell disease. If you have one of the genes abnormal, you have something called sickle cell tray. And the sickle cell tray means that some of the haemoglobin is wrong, but not all of it. So often people don't know, just as you're saying, Maria, they don't know that they've actually got the problem. The reason it's so common in African countries is because if you have the carrier state, it's very hard to infect your blood with malaria. So as a result, that gene which causes the condition has become very, very common, relatively speaking, in African countries that overlap with malarious areas. And so it's been preserved in the population at a higher level than you would otherwise expect. Um, and this is despite the fact that when you get someone who's got two copies of the gene that are abnormal and therefore get more severe problems, this is balanced by the benefit conferred against malaria. Now, what's actually happening with your seven-year-old is that if you have this gene change in your haemoglobin gene, then the haemoglobin, when the oxygen level in the blood drops, as it does as the blood goes through the tissues that are removing oxygen from the haemoglobin, the haemoglobin changes its shape and it aggregates together to form these lines um, which are or have the effect of causing the red blood cells to bend and they form sickle or scythe shapes. And if you look at them under a microscope, you can see the, the cells actually look bent around like the blade of a, a curved blade of a knife, a, scim a scimitar or, or a scythe. And that's the name, hence the name sickle cell anemia. The treatment they're giving him in terms of the folic acid and the penicillin, because the red cells are the wrong shape, then they don't have a very long lifetime in the body. They get broken down more quickly than they should. Red blood cells are supposed to live for 120 days. If they're the wrong shape, they get damaged more quickly. They block in blood vessels and break down more quickly. And as a result, the person becomes anemic. In other words, they have too few red blood cells. And this can cause symptoms of tiredness and muscle aches and pains, cramps, and people don't have as much energy as they should. And so by pushing the person on folic acid, you can help to make sure that they can make enough red blood cells in order to stay healthy. The reason that they take penicillin is because one of the organs that can be affected by the, the disease is the spleen. And the spleen is at the top left part of your abdomen. And the spleen is very important for presenting to the immune system foreign antigens and infections so the immune system can fight them off. And if you don't have a, a, a good blood supply to the spleen, then the spleen can become less good at driving your immune system. And as a result, you can become more susceptible to infection, and especially infections caused by certain types of bacteria, capsulate bacteria. So by putting people on penicillin as prophylaxis, it's a good way of making sure they don't succumb to those infections. The hydroxyurea can actually stop 
the um, or, or it's a it's an anti-proliferative agent. It slows down the production of certain other cells in the body. Um, this sh- this may be having the effect of lowering the platelets, the clotting the clotting components in the blood, and that may explain the nosebleeds. I'd have to check that, but I would think that might be why they've done that. Um, I'll have a look into it and see if I can if I can confirm or if anybody knows um, that if hydroxyurea can cause low platelets and possibly bleeding nosebleeds. Do let us know, but I think that's probably what's going on, Maria. Mm-hmm. Good luck to you, Maria. And Professor Richard Guy uh, has uh, possibly has an answer for Greer, who phoned us earlier. Good morning to you, Professor. Hi, it's Hi not then. Richard Guy. It's Guy Richard. Guy Richard, um, I beg your pardon. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. That's a problem. <laughs> um, now, I just wanted to mention that first of all, sucking a baby out or not at birth has no impact upon subsequent chest function. It's not uh, an important issue overall. And if a child has ongoing chest problems at the age of eight months, this child needs to be investigated for more chronic lung diseases, um, things, simple things like allergic rhinitis or even asthma, which can occur at extremely young ages, or even things like cystic fibrosis, because these are all things that can give you chronic lung disease uh, in the long term. Just one other point, she mentioned or worried about antibiotics. Now, it is true, we worry about antibiotics being used inappropriately because they cause resistance amongst the bacteria that we have in the community. They do not have any effect upon the, the, as she said, the body's system or breaking down the body's system. Antibiotics have no effect on your immunity. They only decrease the sensitivity of organisms that we treat with antibiotics. So whereas I agree that repetitive courses of antibiotics would be a waste of time, the, uh, the patient does require investigation as to why the chest is, uh, uh, is still troublesome after eight months. Okay. Uh, Chris, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's, that's good, very well said. Um, I would add one thing about the antibiotic issue, and thank you for those well-made points which is that if you do continuously expose yourself to antibiotics, then you're not just killing the bad guys, you're also killing the good guys. And one thing we're seeing increasingly these days are rates of allergy and also other inflammatory bowel problems and so on because we now know that uh, you do actually wipe out your endogenous flora. In other words, the bacteria that live inside you and are supposed to be there and as a result, this can increase the risk of developing subsequent lifelong allergy states and diarrheal diseases. And the individuals who seem to be most susceptible are young babies. So if you give youngsters under the age of a year large doses of broad-spectrum antibiotics, then this can lead to an increased risk of allergy later in life. Thank you very much, Professor Guy. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. Professor Guy uh, Richard in Parktown. I have a, an, e- an email here from John, uh, John and Diane. They sent an email. Um, a few days ago, I had a very bad nosebleed, which would not stop. I remembered an old wife's tale about putting ice behind your neck. I tried this and it worked. Is there any scientific explanation? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, it always surprises me that people, when they have a nosebleed, they always say, tilt your head back, which is actually the wrong thing to do because the, the blood just then runs down your throat. Whereas if you pinch your nose, two nostrils together, and keep your head tilted forward, then the blood pools and the clotting cascade is more effective and you do actually then stop the bleeding. Um, I wonder if by 
holding the ice behind the head. Actually, in order to, to get the ice behind the neck, you have to tilt the head forward and probably also hold something onto the nose. So I suspect it was more a function of tilting the head forward and holding the nostrils together with a cloth over them than, uh, than the ice mm -hmm. doing anything. The, the blood vessels running up the back of the neck, the arteries going into the brain run, run up through holes in your spinal bones. They wouldn't be affected and the blood coming out of the head in the veins that run superficially down the back of the neck would be going to the heart anyway. So I can't really see that there'd be an enormous benefit to, to putting the ice there, um, which would affect the nose, to be honest. Okay, uh, let's go to... But, but uh, Chris, uh, old wives' tales also make uh, life a bit fun, isn't it? <laughs> a bit like if you've got hiccups, you must well, eat sugar or hold <laughs> your breath in, that kind of thing. Some more fun than others. There's one which is definitely true. Which is that uh, if you um, if you hold if you close your mouth you can't hum for more than about ten or twenty <laughs> seconds. Yeah, yeah. Thomas believes them. Hey? You must see the things that he gets up to in the studio. He believes all these old wives' tales. <laughs> Has a soft spot I for old <laughs> wives' tales. <laughs> Let's go to David uh, in Orchard. Hi there. Uh, uh, doctor, um, how are you? Mm. I, I, I'm a 41-year-old guy who's suffering with a detached labrum in my hip at the moment. And I've actually had shoulder surgery as well um, for dislocations. I've, I've, I've had T on the one side, and I've actually got another dislocation on the other side. But I'm worried about this, this uh, hip operation, the FAR, femoral acetabella impingement syndrome. And I was wondering, you know, you were talking about the stem cell research. I was wondering if there's any possibility for progress with developing cartilage, whether I should wait, you know, or whether I should have this operation on, on my hip. Hmm. Hi, David. <clears throat> well, I'm sorry to hear about your problems. Um, the answer is that at the moment people are, are doing research to try to work out how we can restore tissues with stem cells, but it's very early days. And there's certainly nothing that you could take off the shelf right now and say, this is a solution to these kind of structural problems. Um, you have to make a decision, really, which is about the quality of your life versus the risk. So you're just sort of doing a risk assessment, if you like. Um, if I have this surgery what will it do to my quality of life versus if I don't have this surgery and, and wait for someone to invent something, it might take them 50 years to invent something and meanwhile you've continued to have problems. Um, to my knowledge, there is nothing that orthopods can offer people at the moment which is a direct solution to worn out cartilage. What people are doing is looking at clever materials that can be used to resurface joints. So when hips clap out, for example, they're looking at doing resurfacing surgeries where you use materials which would re-coat or re restructure the bone ends so that they then re-articulate correctly. But we certainly aren't in a position yet where we can take the cells, the chondrocytes that make cartilage, and grow them in a dish using, say, a model and make them make new cartilage. But that's the aim. The idea would be to take a, a scan of the surface of someone's joint you'd know what the correct configuration of the cartilage should be. You build some kind of model using a degradable material and you put the stem cells into that which secrete the factors that assemble to make cartilage. You grow this in a nutrient solution for as long as it takes to make the new cartilage and then you implant that into the body and the original scaffolding material that you use breaks down naturally and is harmless to the body and it just leaves healthy cartilage. That's the goal. Um, there are quite a few steps being taken towards doing this kind of thing, but there's certainly nothing that at the moment you could get off the shelf and, and plumb into you, unfortunately. Okay, Candice in Midrand, hi. Hi there. Mm. Um, I just want to find out um, why some people sweat more than others and then um, why uh, perspiration.
firing can smell and not smell on the same okay. person. Hmm. Hi. <laughs> um, are you referring to the the sweating of another or yourself? No, myself, like under my arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, no, I just wonder if you were trying to find the solution to a, to a certain whiffy partner or something. <laughs> um, you dump those, uh, Chris, that's the solution. <laughs> yes. Um, the answer is that we have sweat glands. Sweat glands are specialized tissues within cell, uh, within the skin. They have a rich blood supply and they have a branch of the sympathetic nervous system. And your sympathetic nervous system is activated when you have to do fight or flight. So when you're stressed or you need to run away or you're actively doing things, your sympathetic nervous system switches on. It does various jobs within the body, including making you breathe faster and harder, make your heart beat faster, puts your blood pressure up to certain tissues to make sure you supply those tissues well, and it increases sweating by boosting the blood flow through those glands. They filter liquid from the blood and put it into a tiny duct, which then opens onto the surface of the skin, and the sweat then runs out onto the skin surface, and as it evaporates, it takes away latent heat of vaporization from the skin. In other words, it takes extra energy away from the skin in order to enable the molecules of water to turn from a liquid into a gas. And that's why it has the cooling effect that it does. And you can actually train your sweat glands. When people are highly trained athletes, they can sweat more than people who are untrained. And so your body can adapt to the demands of exercise and the need to lose heat by boosting its sweat gland performance. And part of the training that athletes do is to increase their sweating capacity so that they can lose heat more rapidly and therefore maintain a, an appropriate body temperature. Because it's under nervous control, you also will find that some people endogenously or intrinsically will have a higher sweating tone than others. So some people will be sweatier than others quite naturally. So that's another aspect to consider. And then there are some conditions that make people sweat more. Um, there is one called hyperhidrosis. And often people will, who have this, they might complain of very sweaty hands. Um, they have pathologically sweaty hands all the time. And this can be very disabling because every time you try and touch things, you leave sort of a slick behind. And every time you shake someone's hand, I've got very sweaty hands. Uh, so mm -hmm. one thing that can be done about that is actually to deactivate the nerves that run out from the top of the neck down the arms, and this can stop the problem from happening, and people find that uh, a great relief to them. Some drugs can also boost sweating, and mm -hmm. drinking a lot of coffee, if you thrive on caffeine like I do, mm -hmm. this activates your sympathetic nervous system because it potentiates the action of adrenaline, the body stress signal. And so this can make people a bit, bit clammier yes. as well. Right. And then certain other conditions that strongly activate the sympathetic nervous system, like having a heart attack, for example, causes enormous activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And this can make people go quite sweaty and clammy. So it can be uh, perfectly normal and it can sometimes be abnormal. And it can also be triggered by other things and you can train it to make yourself sweatier or less sweaty accordingly. All right, Chris, we'll chat to you next week. Enjoy the workshop. All right. Thanks for having me. See you bye -bye. soon. Bye-bye.